We are going this week back to Genesis. In one sense, we're starting a new series, and in another sense, we're picking up where we left off at the end of last fall. So we, have, we did a series through the beginning chapters of Genesis. Last fall, we did a series on the life of Abraham, and that took us up through Genesis 23. Now, this fall, we're going to get through the rest of Genesis. Those of you who know that there's 50 chapters of Genesis may be a little skeptical, but some of the stories get really long, and you'll thank me that we're not reading them verse by verse. But the, uh, as we get back to this, we get to chapter 24, and Isaac, the son who had been promised to Abraham, uh, needs a wife. And uh, really, the last story we hear much anything about Ab- that Abraham has done anything is, is in chapter 24, and he sent his servant to go find a wife for Isaac. And we're actually going to skip most of that early part where all that happens and pick up where the servant is recounting everything you've just read. <laughs> uh, so we're going to pick up in verse 34. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And and Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when he was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son, for my clan and for my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my father Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son." Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her, water, with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Now we're going to skip ahead. He goes on with the story for a bit, and we pick up with the response of her brother and father. In verse 50, then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. 
Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while and let at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of 10,000s and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, God always gives us his word so that we can know him, so we can know his love for us, so that we can respond to him in love. So let's pray that he'd speak to us this morning. Lord, we thank you for the chance to be here, to listen to your word. We pray that as we unpack it this morning, that everything that's fruitful would convict us and whatever isn't worthwhile, Lord, we'd forget. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be honoring to you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. That's the opening line to Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, if you don't remember. Um, Isaac is a man with a big fortune and no wife. This story goes on for 60, what is it, 67 verses. And it seems like the longest, lowest stake story you could possibly tell. For most of us, anyway. Partly because we want to think of the Bible as a certain kind of story, or certain kinds of stories. We think maybe about the adventures. We think maybe about the court intrigues. But this is a betrothal story. There's no bad guy here. There's no uh, enemy to be overcome. There's simply a single man in possession of a good fortune looking for a wife. And yet, what's so helpful to understand is that even in all those other stories that maybe kind of jump off the page, the stories that are often repeated in children's Bibles that we put up in highlight in Sunday school class, uh, and other stories maybe like this that are a little more mundane, a little more routine, all of these stories are given to us not so that we can isolate them as hero stories or as fables, morality tales. They are given to us so that we can see the great epic of God's faithfulness to his people. So we can see the great storyline that runs from the beginning to the end. As uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, there are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And what's strange, particularly about Isaac, is that Isaac isn't a character we learn very much about. There's not really actually a lot of stories about him here. He, there's a lot more about Abraham, and there's a lot more about Jacob, his son. There's a, even more about Jacob's children. There, but Isaac 
is kind of a bridge character. He is in the middle of the patriarchs. And yet, maybe it's specifically because his story is a bridge that we learn that this is a story about God's continued provision. How God continues to provide for his people. And we learn this, that God's provision is clarified in his promises. God's provision is engaged by prayer. And God's provision is received as a gift. God's provision is clarified in his promises. It is engaged by prayer and it is received as a gift. So, we see that God's provision is clarified by his promises. As we mentioned, this is picking up where the Abraham story left off. And in fact, what Abraham is doing here is really finishing the last major task he has as a father. This is a world of arranged marriages. Now, uh, we, I think we have a very cookie-cutter view of that, as if the people that are getting married have no input, and that's not exactly how it worked. Just like now, when we don't have arranged marriages, families still kind of have some input to some varying degree or another, right? And that kind of varies family to family, but they have some input, just as, you know, the people getting married in an arranged situation did too. So, you see even Rebecca getting called upon, right? Uh, She still has to agree, and then she has to agree to go. But this is Abraham's last task. But we hear something right at the beginning of, of our reading that's really helpful. We hear echoes of Abraham's call. Back in Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham, he says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, all the, in, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And notice how the servant starts off in verse 30. Well, he says, I'm Abraham's servant in verse 34, but then he goes on and says, the Lord has what? Greatly blessed my master. And he has become great. He's echoing the words of God, the promises that God had made to Abraham. And in fact, it's because of those promises that Abraham even sends this servant out looking for a wife elsewhere, sends him back to his home country. Because the Canaanites, now, I mean, whatever Abraham's view of them personally is, I mean, maybe he likes them, maybe he dislikes them. I don't really know. The Bible never really tells us that. The point isn't that he can't, that they're necessarily people he dislikes, but that there are people under judgment. Back in Genesis 15, Abraham had been told that, you know, I've already, he already promised the land to Abraham. But in chapter 15, he tells him, he tells him it's because I'm going to bring you, you and your descendants, really, back here and displace these people in judgment on them. That's a longer story. We can talk about the, uh, we can talk about all kinds of issues that are going on in Canaan. Uh, but that's why Abraham sends the servant away in the first place, is because he's listening to what God has promised him. So, Abraham is confident that God will deliver. 
It, you notice this, as, as they go on, the, the servant asks him, he says, well, what if it, in verse 39, what if the woman I find doesn't want to come? It's a long way, after all. And what Abraham says is, the, this is verse 40, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel. And then he tells him, look, you go and you'll be free from my oath. Even if she doesn't come, you'll be free from my oath. I mean, Abraham doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. He only knows that God is faithful. And Abraham is doing what we, well, last fall, saw him slowly learning, is not to try to grab control of the situation, but try to follow where the Lord leads. Isaac needs a wife. He's trying to listen to God's promises, and he sends his servant where he knows to look. And he trusts the Lord to follow. So look, if God's provisions are clarified by his promises, it begs the question, well, what are God's promises? I think I use that term sometimes. Like, <laughs> I think probably a lot of people use the term about God's promises, but I'm not sure we know what we mean. I mean, just the other day, I was in a store that had all these, well, all these signs that you can put up in your house, but a bunch of them were Bible verses. You know, yeah, plenty of them were fine, made sense. But some of them were definitely lifted out of context and perhaps did not mean the thing that people would think they meant by putting them up on their wall in their house. There's all kinds of ways in which we tend to do this. I, I gave a sermon uh, at, our, at my old church. I, I gave a sermon in a series on Job that was all about the advice of Job's friends. So we read all these biblical passages that were all wrong because they were the words of his terrible friends. You know, if you lift it out of context, I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty bad. I get it. But like, there's lots of ways in which we do this. Here, here's another example. The book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is a, a great book. Uh, Billy Graham used to read one chapter of Proverbs every day. There's 31 chapters, so if you think about it, he basically gets through the whole book in one month. It, yeah, it's one chapter off some of the months. Or then there's February. No one understands why February works the way it does. But the book of Proverbs has lots of wisdom for us, right? It's a book of wisdom literature. It's about how the world and life generally works. So there's a ton to learn there, but it's not promises, Take for example, I just picked a couple. Take for example, Proverbs 10.4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. I mean, it's telling you, right, like if you work hard, generally, you'll be able to provide for yourself and do, you know, do better for yourself. If you're a slacker, probably going to struggle. And that's maybe generally true. I know we could, we can debate what's going on in America right now. But that's a generally true statement, okay? It's not a promise, though. Because we do know people, you probably know people, who are not hard workers and yet seem to somehow fail up all the time. And you know people who are hard workers that really struggle to get by. It's a generally true statement, but it's not a promise. 
Or how about this one? Proverbs 12, 21. No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Well, the Bible itself tells us all over the place that that isn't always true. There's a bunch of Psalms that talk about how that isn't true. Why is it that the the wicked prosper? There's the book of Job. There's Ecclesiastes, a bunch of places that, that say that, look, that isn't always true. And yet it is generally true that it is, things go worse for you if you turn from God's law. I'm just, these are just a few examples. We could, the book of Proverbs is filled with this, where it's easy to take those truths and think of them as promises. No, they're general wisdom about life. There's other ways in which we do this. Here's another good one. We take the promises given to ancient Israel as a nation and apply them to our nation. Wrong. It's not that, look, it's not that it's wrong to want America to be a a good and righteous place. That's not a bad desire. But those promises are given to God's people there in a pretty specific context. And if anything, if those carry over to anyone else, it's the church, not our nation. And even then, it's not exactly the promise for a specific land. It's the promise of the new heavens and the new earth restored. In other words, simply quoting a Bible context, a Bible verse out of context, you know, with no sensitivity to the genre in which it appears, unmoored from the whole counsel of God, is not a particularly great way to think like, I can hang on to the promises in the Bible because I found a verse that I really like. No. Instead, what we ought to ask is what are the new covenant promises given to us in Christ? I'm not saying we can't learn from all those other things. We do. I think, look, we just finished a series of Daniel. We're here in Genesis. There's a plenty, a lot to learn in the Old Testament, and there's a lot that applies, but it applies as it is fulfilled in Christ. So the kind of promises we ought to be hanging on to are the ones like the very end of Matthew 28, the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. In the great, this is the Great Commission. Jesus says, you know, I've got all authority, go make disciples. And then he says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's a promise. There's a bunch of them in, uh, in near the end of the Gospel of John, where Jesus has a long conversation with his disciples during the Last Supper. But he says things like, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. There are other places where we're told, say, for example, Romans 8, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I mean, those are promises <laughs> to hang on to. And one of the features of that 
And I, I dare say, all of, the te- all of the promises we are given in the new covenant in Christ is that we are not promised to get whatever our hearts desire. We are promised to get whatever his heart desires for us. You see the difference? That in Jesus, we have everything we need because he's giving us what he desires and longs for us. Whenever we're clinging to promises because they tell us, I'm going to get exactly the thing I want, we are probably barking up the wrong tree. Rather, when they tell us what good things God has for us, what good things God wants for us, those are the promises to hang on to. That's part of why we need the consistent reminder of the good news of Jesus. Because my mind, I don't know about yours, my mind so often is filled more with the things that I need now. The things I want accomplished. The things I want to get done. The things I want to achieve. The things I want. That's the word that seems to come up over and over again in my heart, right? It's what I want, what I want, what I want. And what I need to hear is what Jesus has done. What I need to be reminded of over and over again is how he emptied himself and entered in. How he suffered and died for me. And by suffering and dying, defeated sin and death and rose from the dead for me. And even now, even now, sits on the throne of heaven and has sent his spirit. So that he is with us. And is drawing us into the presence of the Father. And because he is doing all those things, I have everything I need. I am called, I am justified, I am being sanctified and will be glorified one day. And those are the things I need to dwell on. Those are the promises that I need to hear is what Jesus has done and what he is doing and what he will do. I don't need a promise about what grades I'm going to get. I don't need a promise about what direction my career is going to go. I don't need a promise about what kind of house we can afford. I don't need any of those promises for those promises are empty. They are meaningless. They are really, at the end of the day, made up. The only thing that God promises you is the best thing, is everything that we have in Jesus. That is what God promises you. See, so we understand God's provision more clearly the more that we understand what his promises are. And because we understand those, we can actually engage him in real prayer. Now, verses 42 through 44 tell us about this servant's prayer. Now, this is a strange prayer. I'm not going to tell you this is a pattern for the way that you ought to pray. I don't think it exactly is. Uh, It's not usually wise, probably, to set up a whole elaborate sequence in your head of exactly how God ought to do it. And yet, there is something important happening here. He is praying based on what God has promised that he would continue to provide for a line that comes from Abraham. 
the servant, like his master, knows that God will provide. Some way, somehow. And he is asking him to provide. And this gets right into our dysfunctions in prayer. I mean, our, look, so often our prayers are focused on, because we're focused on promises about what we want, we're thinking mostly about how we could get into the next thing, right? Whether that's college, whether it's a specific program, whether that's, you know, into that interview at that job, get into that job. We're th- focused on that, and then we're focused on getting ahead. How do I do better at this? Even our relationships are like that, right? We're focused on like, well, how do I get this person's attention? And then how do I win at this relationship? And even when we stop focusing on getting in and getting ahead and just start focusing maybe on just getting by, if that's where you're at in life, whether it's getting in and getting ahead or just getting by, we tend to fall into bargaining with God You know these prayers. God, if you'll just give me this thing, if you'll just make this particular relationship work out, if you will just help me get into this program, if you'll just help me get this job, if you'll just help me achieve this milestone, then I'll do all these things for you. And what we miss is that God doesn't need any of it. Why on earth would God take that bargain? God doesn't need you. The one who created the world by the power of his word is not really interested in what resources you have to bring to the table. What he is interested in is your heart. And the last thing you need is to just get what you want because you wanted it. I'm not saying he's withholding. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. What I am saying is the last thing we need is to just get our own selfish way. The way in which our hearts get cemented in our own pride and selfishness is just by getting what we want. The person who always seems to get what they want and get ahead is usually not the person you think, boy, I really like spending a a lot of time with that person. They might be good looking, they might be attractive, they might be wealthy, they might be, you know, whatever. People might like that aspect. But in terms of their character, they're not usually the people you actually want to spend a lot of time with. What the servant is doing here what we're called to do is actually the opposite of bargaining. It's not, hey, Lord, if you will do these things in this sequence, then I'll serve you. No, he's listening to the promises. He's following through. And now he's asking God to deliver on the promises. 
You see, the less clear the promises of the real promises of God are in our minds, the more our prayers wander. The more they're filled just with what I want. And again, it's not that God doesn't want you to talk about what your desires are. But the more that we're listening to what his promises are, the more our prayers can be specific and clear and intentional and bold. The more you're talking about just getting the things that you want so that you feel good and have a good time, you know, good luck. You can be as bold as you want, but I don't know that anything's coming your way. And really, heaven help you if it does. But the more that you're listening to God's promises, the more you can be bold. Let me give a, just a couple of, I think, pretty clear examples. God has promised that he saves the lost. So the more that we grasp that promise, the more our prayers can be specific. We can pray for people that we know that are lost. We can pray for our own hearts that they would be convicted and desirous to seek the lost. We can pray for opportunities to share the good news of Jesus. Now, it may be that God doesn't open the doors we think He would open, but He opens other doors. Fair enough. But He's delivering on His promises. How about this? He promises that He wants to change you. The more that we grasp that promise of God, that He is going to change our hearts, the more we can pray that He changed our hearts. That He deal with this sinful pattern, that He grow the fruit of the Spirit in me. Now, it may be that the thing we think would be the top priority is not God's top priority to grow in our lives, and He grows other things in our lives. Fair enough, but He's still delivering on His promises. See, learning God's promises helps us actually to prioritize prayer. It's when we understand God's promises that even say something like the Lord's Prayer becomes more obvious and how it works. Because it sets out God's priorities, but they're based in His promises, right? We could go on and on about this, but you know, James 4 diagnoses our problem. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see, uh, Paul Miller in his book on prayer describes this as the sort of two ditches, right? Not asking and asking selfishly. Those are the two ways in which we seem to have a hard time navigating between. <laughs> but in fact, the more we are rooted in the promises of God, the more we can pray boldly and surrender our hearts to God. Because we're, we're bold because it's His promises, not our imagined promises that He's given us. And we can surrender because we trust that He is the one who's going to work it out right. However, you know, however much we wouldn't have guessed the direction He might take some of these roads in our lives. But we can surrender to Him because He is the one who's laying it out. It's his promises. 
See, the more that we're, our prayers are informed by it, the bolder they are. And the more that we understand that prayer actually is the way to engage God's promises. It's not one of the ways. It is the way. So John Calvin describes prayer as the means by which we dig up all of the promises of the gospel. Because it is in prayer that we are engaging those promises. So, God's provision is clarified by His promises. It's engaged by prayer. And notice this, it's received as a gift. Because that's all it is. It is God's gift. It's God's delivery on His promises. Notice how Laban and Bethuel uh, begin by acknowledging this. Uh, we're going we're gonna to meet Laban again later on, and we will discover just how um, conniving a character he really is. But even Laban <laughs> in this story can't deny it. The servant in 50, verse 52 bows down to pray. And we see Rebecca's willingness in verse 58 to, to leave everything and follow. Now, no doubt she's going to a wealthy man to marry him, and there's some incentive in that. But the, right, you know, the thing that would have been typical would be to honor your parents and you know, honor their desire for, to stay for 10 more days. It's not actually all that long. But she's got no time to waste. Because the promises are being delivered. I think because we, because we struggle in prayer, we often miss the opportunity to celebrate the gift of God delivering on His promises. Because our minds and our hearts aren't really focused on His promises because our minds and our hearts are not really engaged with them all that often. The tragedy is we miss the chance to actually celebrate it. There's a great line in um, C.S. Lewis's reflection on the Psalms. Well, it's not a line, it's a paragraph. (laughs) This is what he says. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. I'm going to repeat that part. Praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it's expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur And then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in a ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. And then this part really warms a Presbyterian's heart. The Scotch Catechism says that a man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify To enjoy God is to glorify. 
one of the reasons we're so slow in praise, and I include myself certainly in this, is because so often my prayer is not really focused on God's promises. My heart, my mind is not really thinking about what has God promised to deliver, what are His priorities. And as He is giving us so many good things, I miss the gift over and over and over again. But God's promises are only received as a gift. And the more we're focused on them, the more we can see the twists and turns, not as hurdles, but as the mystery of God delivering. There's a moment at the beginning of 2 Corinthians where Paul is talking about how he had plans to visit this church, and then they got, uh, they got changed. And yet, he still says that, the, that that was for the good, that that was still God delivering on his promises. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit as our hearts, in, our, in our hearts as a guarantee. Paul is saying, look, even though my plans changed, even though the way I thought this was going to go changed, it changed because God is the one at work. And so every one of his promises he still delivers on, even though I thought it was going to go this one way and it went another But even that is a cause of praise. Because again, we, even when we're thinking about God's promises, we still have our own ideas about how that would work out. And yet the great mystery is that God rarely delivers everything exactly the way we think he ought to. And the more that we're focused on his promises, the greater delight there is that it isn't exactly the thing I designed in my own head. That God has accomplished all these things, not the way that I thought they ought to work out, not the way I thought would be cool, not the way I thought would be neat, not, not the way I thought might actually be the way that would get me all the things I want. But he's delivered again and again. And of course, the best and most important and central example is Christ himself. God's people did not think that the way Messiah would accomplish everything that was promised was by going to a cross and dying. Nobody thought that. They knew he had to deal with the problem of sin. They knew he would raise the dead. They knew that he would bring judgment. But no one could have guessed that the way that that would be accomplished is for the Son of God himself to put on flesh and to die for you and me. The wonder of the gospel is that it didn't happen the way we would have thought, the way we would have planned. But because he didn't deliver the way everybody thought he would, the way we would think would be wise, the way we would plan it, we have more riches than they ever dreamed of. Because even now, as we already read in one of those promises, we are being made into the image of the Son. Even now, Christ is still with us by His Spirit. Even now, even to the end of the age, He is with us. 
Let's go to this meal and be reminded of that promise. Father, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that Jesus is with us by his Spirit. In fact, the way he can be with all of us all over the world is by his Spirit. And that in this meal that you provided for us, by the Spirit we are fed on the work of Jesus. So, Lord, as we come, would you cement your promises in our imagination? Would it shape the way that we pray? And, Lord, would we receive it with joy? We ask in Christ's name. Amen.